I, I mean, you probably noticed that. I love to teach the book of Hebrews. That's one of the most theologically astute books, but you cannot put your mind on a shelf and put it in neutral. You, it really, you have to engage your thinking as we go through this text, because it is masterful what the author is doing here. That's why it's such a wonderfully unique book. And the author of the Hebrew, book of Hebrews is saying, go forward in your faith. Another way of saying it, it, it applies to each and every one of us, regardless of, of, of what the nature of your, of your relationship with God was before you trusted Christ. Don't look back, look forward. Before you grab for the present, you've got to let go of the past. Before the future is meaningful to you, you've got to let go of the past. And that's their struggle. And so the author organizes the book of Hebrews around this theme. Jesus Christ is the preeminent Lord of the universe. And if he is the preeminent Lord of the universe, then you need to follow him. Your future is wrapped around him, not the past, not the law. And he's going to try to explain that relationship between the old and the new. And as we get quite a bit into the book, which it'll probably be till the fall, till we're there at, at the earliest, he will talk a lot about the new covenant. The book of Hebrews is one of the masterful New Testament books that really develops the doctrine of the new covenant. So uh, there are a couple of introductory things that I just mentioned there on page uh, three and in the way we've already dealt, dealt with them. But uh, the author, we're not sure, the destiny of the epistle, it's written to, to Jewish Christians. The time of the writing is probably in the 60s. And I already talked about the purpose of the book and so on. So, I mean, I, I could develop a lot of this, but almost all of your Bibles, and I don't, unless you have a very simple, basic one, have some kind of introductory couple paragraphs about the book of Hebrews. And they're probably saying the same things I say. Now, I would like you to particularly look at this chart that's at the top of page three, okay? Now, there are so many ways to look, but if you look at this chart... The reason I like this and the reason I use it is down the center, you have the basic segments of the book. And on your right and your, on your left is how the author organizes this. So after each doctrinal section, there's a warning. After, and there are five major doctrinal sections, and then there's a warning. And each one of those warnings, I will develop this and talk about this as we get into it. But each one of those warnings, in effect, is saying, don't go back. Go forward. And he's just constantly urging them to go on, go forward with Jesus instead of going back. And so if you, and that's how I'll teach this and we'll go through it. But this is heavy doctrine. But after each doctrinal section, there's a warning that if they go back, the consequences are, are serious in their walk with the Lord. So, um, I mean, I, I don't want to... I don't want to get into a lot of the other difficult and somewhat controversial aspects of the book of Hebrews. We'll deal with some of that as we get into some of the warning passages. So I'm ready to start the text, unless you have questions. Can we just start with four? Is that where you're going to start? Um, on page four? Yeah, yeah. Of, of your outline. Yeah. yeah, on page four, right. Mm -hmm. That has at the top, the header there is Christ the Superior Revelation. Are there any questions? I mean, I, I heard through a lot of that, but I, I hope that was all right. Most of that isn't terribly important unless you really want to dig into some of the, the, the controversies about the book of Hebrews. But 
It's one of the richest books of the Old, New Testament. It really is. It's, it's one of the richest and, I think, rewarding studies that we'll have together. So, It's kind of a letter to the Hebrews. It is a letter. That's correct. It is a letter to them. We just don't know the author. It, yeah, there is just not certain. And there's, there is so much disagreement. My opinion is usually my position on things like that. If there's so much disagreement, let's probably not be certain. Whatever you're going to, let's be, let's not be as certain because I think it's best. There is just absolutely no consensus on who wrote the book of Hebrews. And throughout the 2,000 years of the church, there's been no consensus. And so it's best probably for reasons that aren't clear, the Lord just didn't want us to spend a lot of time in trying to figure out who wrote it. Paul's letters, there are 13 of them. There's no lack of clarity on that. John's letters, there's no lack of clarity on that. But the book of Hebrews is one of those kind of difficult ones. Well, the, the author who isn't in question is the Holy Spirit. It made me spill my coffee, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're, <laughs> you're right. I mean... Oh, that which God blesses, man ruins. <laughs> So, Fred, it's all your fault. Now I have a permanent stain of coffee, and I have a coffee on my handkerchief. My wife's going to... I'm just kidding. Uh, What Fred said is absolutely correct. The inspiration and ultimate divine authority of this is the Holy Spirit. But the human author is where the controversy is. Thank you for reminding us of an important theological point. Appreciate it. Now let's start. Here I I am going to try to, at least for the first... uh, five, six chapters of the book, I am going to try to hold tightly to the outline because I think it helps us to understand what the author is trying to do. So if you look at the outline, I entitled the point one, which is really the first three verses, Christ, the superior revelation. Why devote three verses to that? Why introduce the book with that? Because if they are going back and have that tendency and that draw to go back, they're going to miss the entire revelation of what we know as the New Testament centered in Christ. So he has to show rather clearly that Jesus is the final superior revelation of God. So what I'd like to do is read the three, first three verses, and then we'll go back and take it apart, as, as, as we often do. Because this is rich. It's a very, very theologically deep uh, section of Scripture. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, who, when the author uses the phrase, spoke to our fathers, of whom is he speaking? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the descendants. Our fathers. By the prophets. What prophets? Give me some examples. Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah. I mean, you can just, I mean, uh, half of the Old Testament is history and prophets. And so you, you have this richness of God's revelation through, and what you could paraphrase that first phrase, uh, verses, in the Old Testament, God spoke to us. But in these last days, now, all New Testament writers do this. The phrase, last day. When you hear that, you're thinking about the second coming of Christ. 
And that's not wrong, but the, the New Testament puts it this way. The last days is all of time after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Why would that be the case? That from God's perspective, the last days are everything after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's bringing his plan to the culmination. That's it. When Christ is resurrected and goes back to the Father, there's nothing more that needs to be done. The redemptive plan is totally complete. Now we're waiting for the return of Christ to establish the kingdom of God on earth and ultimately usher in the new heavens and new earth. So from God's perspective, these are the last days. Remember we studied Peter a number of months ago? Peter's making the same point. That when you look at it this way, remember that to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. What does that mean? From God's perspective, which is an eternal perspective, he doesn't look at time the way you and I look at time. He's not governed by time. And so the author is saying in these last days, he has spoken to us by or through his son. So this is saying something that's really, really important to us. Now listen, this sentence is a really important sentence. The final revelation of God is Jesus. The revelation of God is in four categories. Category number one is his creation. That's what Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 34 argues. Revelation number two is conscience. That's what Romans chapter 2 is all about. Revelation number three is God's moral law given to Israel, summarized by the Ten Commandments. Revelation number four is Jesus. The last and final revelation of God. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. What major religion, what major monotheistic religion is dramatically impacted by this verse. Judaism. Well, Judaism, yes. But I was thinking of another one. Islam is what I was thinking of. Because what does Islam teach? Jesus is not the final revelation. Who is? Muhammad. 600 years later, Muhammad's major work is in the 630s. So, I mean, you, you, this, is a, this is a devastating verse for the Muslim. This is a categorically an abysmal verse for a Muslim. Because it's making the clear argument, the final authoritative revelation of God is Jesus, his son, not Muhammad. And then what follows, and this is the way I organized your notes, the author makes seven statements about Jesus. Seven authoritative statements about who Jesus is. He has the title, the Son of God. He is the final revelation of God. Okay, now let's take a look at each one of these dimensions. Uh, Are you with me? I'm trying to, this is so rich and so important that I don't want you to miss this, uh, many parts of this. He's trying to demonstrate that Jesus the Son, as the final revelation of God in these last days, is superior to any other revelation. 
Number one, he's the heir of all things. What does that mean? He inherits everything. He inherits everything. He owns it all, but if he's an heir, that means he inherits everything. This this is rooted. This is rooted in Old Testament theology that the Messiah will inherit this rebellious planet and rule over it. So he is the Lord and heir of all things. That's focusing on his person. That's focusing on his distinguishing characteristics as a person. But notice, he's not only the heir, because he is, he is the heir because through him all things were created. He created the world. So the Son, who is the heir to all things, the sovereign Lord, is the sovereign Lord because he's the creator of all things. So this Son is not only the heir, he's also the creator. Can you say that of Muhammad? No. I mean, the text is making it very clear. Don't put Jesus, the Christ, on the same level as a normal human being. Like a prophet. Because Islam teaches Jesus is a prophet. Not the son of God. Not the creator of the universe. He's a prophet. And who's the greatest of all prophets? Muhammad. Because in absolutely central to Islam is that Muhammad is greater than Jesus. I mean, that's exactly the, the doctrinal center of, of Islam is the teaching. It's in the five pillars. It's pillar number one. There's one God, Allah, Muhammad is his prophet. Where's Jesus in that statement? Doesn't exist. Because Jesus is an inferior prophet to Muhammad, the superior and final prophet. This text just proves that's wrong. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 proves the theology of Islam is wrong. Muhammad is not the final prophet of Jesus. Muhammad is not greater than Jesus. And if those two statements are false, then Islam is false. Now, I don't mean to be so categorical and mean, but I mean, that's exactly the right way to look at it. These three verses prove categorically the theology of Islam is wrong. Thirdly, not only is he the heir and the creator, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Okay, now there are a number of translations there. I don't know all that we have here in the room, but maybe some of you have a different term than he is the radiance. What's it? Do any of, you, of the glory of God? Do any of you have a different word there? Do all of you have radiance? Wonderful. What does that mean? Yeah, I expect it means more than just the light, but it's uh, kind of emanating from him everything about his character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does Jesus say to, to Philip in John 14? He that has seen me has seen the Father. You remember on, uh, in the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's a full account of that is in Matthew 17, uh, Jesus uh, has appeared, James and John, with him up on Mount Hermon. I think that's where it is. And Jesus is transformed in front of them. What do they see? They see the radiance and glory of God, which helps us to understand that in the incarnation, what did Jesus surrender? 
His, his attributes as God? No. He surrendered his glory. He set aside his glory. But there are momentary instances throughout his public ministry where that glory is quickly restored. It, it's, but where you see it then is in like Revelation chapter 1, where John, who's on the island of Patmos, sees Jesus and he says, write down what he sees. He's seeing Jesus in all his glory. It's just filled with all these metaphors and figures of speech and these extraordinary statements trying to capture who Jesus is. Isaiah chapter 6 is the same thing. When Isaiah is commissioned to be the prophet of Israel, Isaiah is in the throne room of God and he tries to write down what he sees. And it's almost identical to John's vision in Revelation chapter 1. You read in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Ezekiel the prophet is commissioned to be the prophet, he has the same thing. He sees God in all his glory. It's the same phrases, same descriptive elements that is in Revelation 1, Matthew 17, and in the uh, John, uh, Matthew 17, the, the, the uh, Transfiguration, and even Isaiah. It's incredible similarity. All of the same phrases to describe what the glory of God looks like. Thirdly, excuse me, fourthly, here, here, this is really difficult to translate this accurately. He's the exact imprint of his nature, and his would be of God's nature. What would that involve, his nature? The way he does things. The way he does things. Maybe, to put it almost crudely, what makes God God, Jesus has. Is God... Is, is God is God omnipotent? That means yes. all-powerful. Yeah. Yes. Is Jesus omnipotent? Yes. Yes. Give me an example of Jesus' omnipotence. When he spoke to the Pharisees, he said, before Moses, I am. Uh, for Abraham, actually, I am, but yep. How about in his actions? Did he demonstrate his own? Raising the dead. Okay, raising the dead. Calming the seas. Walking on the water. I mean... All of those demonstrate the omnipotence of God. Jesus has the same omnipotence. Is G, it, we, we know that God is omniscient. What does that mean? He knows everything. Does Jesus ever exhibit omniscience? Fred just gave an example from John eight fifty eight. The woman at the well. Yeah, how many times, especially in the Gospel of John, but how many times... Does it say, and knowing their thoughts, he, so it's, um, how about, oh, I, I know what, how about, how about his omnipresence? Omnipresence, he's everywhere present. You say, wait, wait a minute, Jesus in the incarnation. But one of my favorite passages is, uh, Jesus is in Nazareth, and his disciple, Nathaniel, whom he calls, he says, I saw you this morning under the sycamore tree in Cana. The only that's the only logical conclusion is that's his omnipresent. In his incarnation, he's still omnipresent because he's God and man. I'm not. I'm trying to push you to think deeply about this extraordinary statement. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and that I repeat. I quoted that a, a moment ago. I'll repeat it again in John 14. Philip is probing and questioning Jesus. Show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus' response is, Philip, 
have I been with you so long that you don't understand he that has seen me has seen the Father. Amen. I am the exact, I am the exact imprint, replica, effulgence of the Father. Everything the Father is I am. Because the Trinity is one essence of three persons. And they all equally share and equally are God. And so the, the book of Hebrews, the author is trying to get use human language, which is always difficult, human language to describe in seven statements who is Jesus, the final revelation of God. Is he an angel? Well, that doesn't fit. Is he a superhuman being? That doesn't fit. That's what the Greco-Roman gods were. Who is he? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God, manifested in human flesh. Look at number five. I find this, I find this one of the most remarkable qualities of Jesus. He's not only the creator, characteristic number two, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Of this statement, one author wrote, it's almost sacrilegious, but one author wrote, Jesus is the cosmic glue of the universe. He holds everything together. I don't know how much you, know, you guys study this kind of stuff or think about this kind of stuff, but you know, we, we are just rapidly and radically at an incredible pace discovering more and more about this universe. The Hubble telescope has been immensely helpful, plus a number of these you know, remarkable satellites and, and exploratory things. Remember that one from that explored Pluto a couple of years ago? It took nine years to get there. And I mean, it's just, it just shows the vastness of this. And you know what? And we know that you know planet Earth is is one of a number of planets that you know go around the sun, uh, around the sun in the center of our solar system. But our sun is only part of a larger galaxy of stars called the Milky Way. And the Milky Way, like all galaxies, is moving and spinning. And with Hubble and all these other things, we have just discovered thousands and thousands and thousands of galaxies. But you know what? Still, astrophysicists cannot explain how all of this holds together and spins so perfectly and so methodically. Let's go to the other end of matter. When I had chemistry in college, which was, you know, when the Earth's crust was hardening, or not long ago, I learned chemistry that matter is made up of atoms, and atoms are made up of molecules, and molecules are made up of, uh, I should say, matter is made up of molecules, are made up of atoms, and atoms are made up of, of, of neutrons and protons with electrons spinning around them. And you assign a number to each element of matter depending on how many neutrons and protons. And you remember all that crazy thing, the chemical table and all that stuff you had to memorize? But you know what? Now, we've, we've gone so far in investigating this, now we start talking about things like not only neutrons, protons, electrons, but quarks and mesons and leptons and a dark force and a weak force. Do you know what? They still cannot explain how all this holds together. It holds together. They understand it holds together, but they use strange things like dark force, 
dark matter. I mean, they're just trying to explain things that they can't quite figure out. This verse tells us what holds everything together. Amen. Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The key theme of the Bible is this is a universe of order, not chaos. If it were a universe of chaos, we could not launch a rocket from Cape Canaveral and nine years later hit Pluto. We couldn't do it. But because it is a world of order, we can use mathematics and we can use all of the projections and you can fire a rocket and nine years later hit the target. That doesn't say a great deal about humans, although it does. It's a magnificent achievement. It actually says more about God. That's the kind of universe he created. So dependable, so orderly, that you can fire rockets and hit your targets nine, ten years later. We still have satellites that are not, they've crossed out of our universe that are way out in deep space, still sending stuff back to us. I mean, that, to me, that's astonishing. And it is a great human achievement, but it really does tell us a great deal about our God. And Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Now, I don't. I know we, we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class. I know that. But by now, you should sort of be excited about this. I mean, this is an extraordinary summary of who Jesus is. He's not Muhammad. He's not Buddha. He's not Confucius. He's the Lord of the universe. Amen. And this is describing that final revelation of God. Now, the last two focus on his redemptive work. Making purification for sins. When did he do that? At the cross. And the subsequent revelation, uh, uh, resurrection. He satisfied and completed all of the sacrificial elements that someone has to die for sin. We're going to get to this later in the book, but one of the key phrases about Jesus' finished work on the cross is a once-for-all sacrifice. Because for the, for the Jew, even at this time, for the Jew, you would have to go up to Jerusalem and offer all the sacrifices and so on. And the author of Hebrews says, you don't need to do that anymore. Because Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. Peggy and I often say we are so thankful we were born on this side of the cross. Because if we were born on the other side of the cross, we'd have to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. Aren't you thankful for that? Because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It's also important that it says sins. Mm-hmm. That's right, for sin. That's right. I mean, it's, it's satisfying the righteous demands of a holy God for the sin and rebellion of the human race. Jesus did that. And then the final point in the final aspect of verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Why does the text, the Bible does this quite a bit, why does the text stress he sat down? It's finished work. It's finished. It's done. His work's completed. And that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, and for for a Jew hearing this, Especially a Jew in the first century, immediately would think of Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 110, we're going to see it quoted coming up here in a minute, but Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it talks about 
The father saying to the son, Yahweh saying to Adonai, sit at my right hand now that you have completed your work until I make the earth your footstool. That's exactly what Jesus did. This passage, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, fulfills Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. One of the key Old Testament prophetic texts about the Messiah. And so a Jewish person in oh, roughly 80, 61 or 62 reading about this, <gasps> he's the Messiah. That's what he should conclude. He or she should conclude. So you have these majestic statements Seven of them. He has in the last days spoken to us by or through his son with these seven characteristics. When you're done studying them, your conclusion should be, I got to pay attention to this. Fred. One of the things I thought was interesting is the one of the mother, the mother of uh, the apostles said, uh, like him, like my son's basically to sit on the left. The right. Oh, yes. And Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking. You pointed out that the whole creation is in order, including the finality of it. Of his That's right. And then ultimately, That's right. That's right. I mean, it's a great. Um, I, I almost I want to make sure you're, you're with me on this. Do you have any questions about these seven things? I mean, these are seven extraordinary statements about Jesus. Could you say something more about the sitting down? I mean, what is more what it represents, or was there, was there, is it just a representative action, or was there something that is accomplished by that? Well, I, yeah, I, I think it, it, it does, it does in a way represent, but it more importantly signifies the completion of the redemptive program of God the Father through God the Son. You know, remember when Jesus, is hang, Jesus made seven statements hanging on the cross, and one of those statements was, it's finished. Do you remember that? It's in the Gospel of John. Okay, what's finished? What does he mean by that? It's finished. His work, his redemptive work is done. And so, and this is one of the major themes that's in the book of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the redemptive work is completed now, now he sits down at the right hand of the Father, which is always a position of authority and power, waiting for what? To inherit rebellious planet Earth, to rule and reign over it. But his work's complete. And the text of the, the, throughout the Bible, the text says over and over, okay, Messiah will complete his work, sit down at the right hand of the Father, and will wait for the Father to say, go get your church now. That's the next step we're waiting for. So, Jim, it's, it's symbolically the completion of those work, but it also, Paul makes this point in Romans 1, it also means now he is the absolute Lord of the universe because he's completed the redemptive work. And that means, therefore, that Satan's days are now numbered in terms of that rebellion against God. Sitting on the throne, and I mean, is there a ruling concept embodying all of this? A, a ruling? Ruling. Oh, yes. Oh, boy, you're just asking a great question. I'm trying to decide whether. Um, 
No, it, no, it's so important, Jim. It is so important uh, to really to really answer Jim's very important question. Let me back up a little bit. And I want you to understand the full implications of this in terms of biblical theology. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when this occurred, but it happened sometime before Genesis 3. <laughs> Satan rebelled against God. That's Everybody understands that, right? I mean, you know he rebelled against God. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 and following describes what Satan was before his rebellion. Isaiah 14, 12 and following tells us of his rebellion. When he said, among other things, I will be like the most God, most high God. He wants to top him from his throne. So the moment Satan rebelled, and then in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve joined the rebellion, what's the fundamental question on planet Earth? Who has the right to rule? Is it God the creator? Or is it Satan the rebel? Because when you, if you just read Genesis 3, you would conclude, <gasps> Satan's won. He successfully got God's image bearers to join the rebellion. It's over. Earth is lost to God. The rebellion's been successful. Now, I'm, 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 I'm pressing you to think Macro, big picture, cosmic, that's what's going on there. Satan has rebelled against God. He took a third of the angels with him. Now he has the human race with him. And the clear, clear text of Gen the rest of Genesis is no matter what God does, whether it's the two children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, there's always rebellion. And then by Genesis 6, the, the human race is in such utter rebellion that they're about to self-destruct. So what does God do? Starts all over with Noah and his family. But by the time you get to Genesis 11, what do you see? The rebellion's still there. No matter what God does, the rebellion's still there. So then he chooses one person, Abraham, and says, from him I will choose the Messiah. And the defeat of Satan is all wrapped around that messianic figure. And the more you study the Old Testament, the more narrow it becomes. Oh, he's from the tribe of Judah. Oh, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Oh, he will be raised in Nazareth. And who fulfills all that? Jesus. So when Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is completed, the days of the rebellion are now numbered. So that he sits down on the right hand means... God has won. And Satan's days and evil and sin, it's days and numbered. And we await, that's why it's so exciting, we await the return of Christ for the completion of all this. Psalm chapter 2, which he's going to quote here in the next passage, Psalm 2 is about the sun crushing the rebellion of the human race. Then when he returns um, to occupy the earth, right, there is still man's free will that they, they will exist at that time, correct or not correct. And then if in fact, um, I mean, even in the presence of his ruling, 
They, those who enter the kingdom period alive uh, will have children, some of whom will choose not to follow Christ. That's right. That's right. Illustrating again what Jeremiah said, the heart of humans is desperately wicked, no matter what God does. And that's why, you know, you're asking another question, but that's why the clear biblical teaching of regeneration, we become a new creature in Christ. God changes us from the inside out is so important. And again, that is what is so crucial, and that's what the author is going to be doing here. It's so crucial that we, number one, understand what Jesus, who Jesus is, number two, what Jesus has done for us, and number three, what we need to do with that truth, which is respond to it in faith. Appropriate. And we're declared righteous in God's eyes, and all that stuff. So, I mean, this is a, the author is trying to show something, and that is that I don't think there's any book of the Bible that's more relevant today than Hebrews. You have to understand who Jesus is. Don't just say he's a prophet. He is, but that's not all he is. Don't just say he's a good teacher. He is, but that's not all he is. You have to understand Jesus in the fullness of his person in order to truly understand the significance of his work. And see this, and I I don't mean to be dumping on them because everybody's so concerned about it in these days. This is where Islam stumbles. Do they believe in Jesus? Yes. Do they believe Jesus is a prophet? Yes. Both of which are taught in the Bible. Do they believe that Jesus is the final, greatest prophet of God in the final revelation of God? No. They assign that to Muhammad. But Muhammad died. And Muhammad was buried in a grave. Jesus wasn't. And Jesus also fulfilled all of the prophecies. That's right. Absolutely. So and that's. They, that, how do they go away from that? I mean, how do they, they, they just deny it? You mean, do they mean Islam? It, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, there are two things. Number one, virtually all Muslims I know have never read the Bible. <laughs> I mean, they really haven't. And in some places in, in the Islamic world today, it's a crime to read the Bible. But the second thing, which is more important for them theologically, they will argue, and I've had discussions with Muslims about this, they, they will argue, well, your texts are all corrupted. We can't trust your text. The Old Testament, New Testament, they're corrupted. Do you know what I mean by corrupted? They've, they've been changed, they've been altered. You can't trust them. But the Quran is the final inerrant revelation of God, and you can trust that. So don't read the Bible. Don't read the Old New Testament. They're corrupted. The Jews corrupted the Old. The early church, church corrupted the New. You can't trust that stuff, but trust the Quran. 114 chapters of Gabriel's teachings to Muhammad. And that we can trust. And that, I mean, that's simplistically, that's where they are. I, I remember having breakfast with a Muslim in New York. He was from Kuwait, and that's exactly what he, he and I were talking about that. And he said, well, I can't trust your Old Testament. He goes through this long litany of how corrupted it is. I can't trust you, but I can trust the Quran. And I couldn't, but I didn't say it. I should have said, but you know, Caliph Omar, at the end of the 600th century, destroyed all the texts except one. (laughs) All Quran. I shouldn't have said that, so I didn't. All right. 
So your thought paper for next week is to take these seven statements and in paragraph form write a description of the superiority of Jesus as the final revelation of God. I know you could do that. You won't do it, but I know you could do it. So probably because you know you could do it, you won't do it. Are there any are there any questions or anything that's not clear to you in these seven declarative statements about who Jesus is and why he is the superior revelation of God? John? So they only trust the Quran, but do they trust the New Testament? No. No, no, same thing. It's been corrupted. That's corrupt as well? Yes, absolutely. The whole Bible. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now, this next section, and you can see it in your notes, apparently, in addition to what were stress points for these Jewish Christians, there was a block or a a certain amount of false teaching about Jesus. And one was that Jesus is just like a great angel. He's like a superior angel. And so you we can't we can't put him in the category that that you want to put him in as the God man coming to earth for 33 years. He's like an angel, a great angel like an archangel. And so what the author has to do now is nick that in the bud, absolutely shred that idea. And so what does he have to do? And that's the way I put it in your notes. He has to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's not just an angel. He's superior to the angels. And so what is he going to do with these, with this section? What he's going to do with this section is he's going to quote Old Testament text after Old Testament text after Old Testament text to show Jesus is not an angel. However you think about angels, he doesn't fit that category. And so he has to show that he is superior to the angels to nip in the bud any thought or idea that Jesus is just like a super angel. Okay, does that make sense? That's, that's why he does this. You think, good night, why does he go into this long discussion about Jesus and comparing him to the angels? Because of that teaching. Which, by the way, is what Mormonism says. In heaven, Jesus is Michael, the archangel. And then he came to earth. So this should be relevant for the Jehovah. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to study. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay. What name? That's what the author wants to do. Now I want to ask you a question. Why would he issue seven extensive quotations from the Old Testament here? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he do just what he did in the first couple of verses, just a series of declarative sentences? Why quote extensively? By the way, the book of Hebrews is like the book of Hebrews in terms of the Old Testament. Uh, excuse me, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament the most of any book in the, in, in the New Testament. It's constantly quoting from the Old Testament. Why? It's written to the Jews. That's their authority. That's their book. And so you, you, you want to prove something, 
And as one of you said, to prove that he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies, let's start listing them all. Let's start showing all of these clear prophetic revelations in the Old Testament and to show they're speaking about Jesus. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to take seven, every one of these, seven really important Old Testament texts and apply them to Jesus. And the one conclusion you'll see when you're done and are ready to enter chapter 2 is no matter what you call Jesus, you can't call him an angel. He doesn't fit that. He is so much greater than the angels. Now, again, what I'd like to do... What time is it? Okay, we're okay. What I want to do is... um, I'm going to read each one, each Old Testament text in the respective verses, and and give you the theme. What's the author trying to show here? Because his argument is he's much more superior to the angels, as the name that he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. So verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. The author just quoted from Psalm 2, verse 7. By the way, Psalm 2 is the first messianic psalm in the Psalter. There are 150 psalms. A couple of dozen of them are messianic. Psalm 2 is the first one. So he quotes from that, and he's saying it's very good. Very good rhetorical question. Where in the Bible does it say God speaking to angels, and he says, today you are my son, I begotten you. Okay, what's that mean? Psalm 2-7 is the declaration of the divine sonship of the Son of God. Angels are not called sons. Angels are never referred to as the distinct second person of the Trinity. The divine sonship. And this 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 is theology, but you must understand this, you don't get the point. Remember, God is one essence of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this is the Father saying to the Son, today I have begotten you. And, and begotten, that, that, we're translating that, begotten doesn't have anything to do with origin. Origin means beginning, you know what I mean? It doesn't have anything to do with origin. It has everything to do with authority and position. Today, you are my son today, I begotten. Today I begotten you is now, I don't mean to get detailed, but this is the only way I understand it, was the coronation formula of the Israelite kings. So as David is coronated king, today I begotten you. But Jesus is called the Son. Today I begotten you. The Son of God. What angel anywhere is called the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? I don't know the word begotten. What is it? Uh, I'm not sure I understand. I understand. I hear the words. I understand. I'm not sure I understand your question. Today, begotten you. I don't know what begotten means. Okay. um, I I, I tried to explain that. Let me say it again. Uh, Maybe I didn't do a good job. The word begotten doesn't have anything to do with the origin or beginning of something. It has everything to do with the position, the authority. 
okay? That's why when you read in the New Testament of Jesus, does anywhere in the New Testament it say Jesus was created? Nowhere. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that. But it does say Jesus was begotten. The only, like John 3.16, the only begotten son of, 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 of God. And again, that's that word, it's in Greek, it's monogenes. It's one, unique, only. It refers to authority. It refers to position, not origin. In other words, it, it's not a statement of time, Woody. Does it, does it help think of it that way? Begotten is not a statement of time. It's a statement of position. That's why, as I said a moment ago, in ancient Israel, uh, today I've begotten you, begotten you, that was the coronation formula of the Israeli kings. Now, now, now they're king. They now have that position and authority to rule over Israel in, in the history of, of the nation in the Old Testament. So it's an extraordinary statement of Jesus. To what angel did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Today you are the authoritative king of kings and lord of lords. He never said that to an angel anywhere. Isn't it kind of a lineage thing too? Like when you read the Bible, it says so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot. It does. Yeah, you see that in some of the genealogies. Uh-huh. And I kind of, that's how I read that. Mm-hmm. Lineage. That's right. Now look at the next one. Uh, if I can, I'd like to get two more done before we're done. Because then I won't see you for two weeks and you'll forget all this. <laughs> Or again, continuing verse 5, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14. That verse is about the Davidic covenant. When God promises to David an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal kingdom. So by quoting from Psalm 2.7 and connecting it to 2 Samuel 7.14, what is the author of Hebrews doing? He's not only the son of God, he is the Davidic king. So you're, we're learning, this, is so, this is so powerful. As he is trying to show why Jesus is superior to the angels, he says... He's the Son of God, Psalm 2-7, who is also, what? The Davidic king. Fulfilling the Davidic covenantal promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. I mean, this, man, I I know, I get so excited about this stuff because the theological depth of what he's doing here is extraordinary. But he said to these people, you must understand, you can't put him in a category as angels. He's the son of God, who is also the Davidic king, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. What angel does that? Now, I'm getting all animated here, but I mean, you see what he's saying? I mean, he's saying, you can't even, you can't even get him close to the category of angels. He's not only those seven statements that he introduces him as the final revelation of God, Here's who he is, according to the Old Testament. And he fulfills all this. You see what he's starting to do? He's edging us closer and closer and closer to the conclusion. This is unique, one and only Son of God. He's no angel. 
And he's the final revelation of God in history. And then, then he adds, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Now, that word firstborn, firstborn, firstborn is a title. It has nothing to do it has nothing to do with origins, beginning, or birth. It has everything to do with position. It's a title. Jesus is, in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't have anything to do with his position, his origins, or beginning. It's a position of authority. He's Lord. So when he brings the firstborn, the authoritative position, ruler, Lord, into the world... He says, let all the angels worship him. He just can't be an angel. All the angels worship him. So you don't have an angel worshiping an angel. You have them worshiping the son, who's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the Davidic king. Is it any wonder why the angels worship him? Every Christmas, I think I told you this, every, every Christmas my wife reads Max Licato's uh, little, uh, little uh, book, about Jesus called the cosmic um, oh, cosmic um, how can I not remember the rest of that time of cosmic well anyway it's the account of Jesus coming from heaven uh, to earth in the incarnation and the angels it, it, what Cato does in the books he just the angels what's he doing why is he sending the sun to this dirty, filthy, sin-cursed planet. Why is he doing that? The Cosmic Christ. That's it, the Cosmic Christ. That's the title of the book. And, and, and it's this whole point. See, the angels don't get it completely. The Bible tells us the angels don't understand the redemptive plan of God. Why? Because they don't need to be redeemed. They just can't understand the grace of God. Why is he doing this? Why is he taking this risk? And, and, and what Lakedo does masterfully at the end of the book, as Jesus is born, as Mary, Mary gives birth to him in Bethlehem, the angels bow down and worship. Oh, he's become one of them to save them. Isn't that a great thing at Christmas? Every Christmas, yeah. Peggy, Peggy reads that. And she got me to read it, too. So every Christmas, I read it. It's a short little thing, but it's really worth it. So he's, he's, you only worship God. The Bible makes that clear. You only worship God. So here, Deuteronomy, the angels are worshiping the firstborn, Jesus. So is he an angel? No, he's God. One more. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 104. They are his servants. The word angel, angelos, means messenger. So the angels who bow down and worship him are his messengers. And how many times do you see angels delivering a message from God? Mary, she's in Nazareth. The Annunciation, Gabriel shows up and says, you're going to give birth to a child. It's the Son of God. And, I mean, you could go through Gideon, the angel shows up. Joshua, the angels show up. I mean, so the angels are his messengers. They deliver his message. 
And that's what angels do. Jesus is an angel. He is the one who commissions the angels and is the subject of their message. Boy, I hate to do this, but it's going on 10 of, and I got, there's no way I can complete all of this. So do not forget any of this. I, mean, I don't know what I'll do if I forget it, but I want to pick up in two weeks with verse 8. So he's, he's developed this wondrous connection of these key Old Testament passages, but he's not anywhere near done. He wants to show he's the Messianic King and Messianic Lord, and that's the rest of these references. All right? So Joel and Fred and Glenn and everybody else, it's verse 8. If I ask, where do I need to start? Your answer will be verse 8. Verse eight. <laughs> no, Woody, you'll rescue them. I didn't, I didn't put your name down. You'll rescue them from. All right, I'm going to pray uh, and, and we'll be dismissed here. Thank you. I, I mean, you probably noticed that I love to teach the book of Hebrews. That's one of the most theologically astute books, but you cannot put your mind on a shelf and put it in neutral. You know, it really, you have to engage your thinking as we go through this text because it is masterful what the author is doing here. That's why it's such a wonderfully unique book. Lord, thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for these men that want to gather on a Wednesday over the lunch hour and study it together. Thank you for this clarity. I mean, there's just there's no ambiguity here. There's no lack of clarity. There's no uh, fuzziness. He is being clear and categorical that Jesus is the final revelation of God. In these last days, the Father has spoken through his Son. And then there's seven fantastic descriptions of who the Son is, concluding with he sat down at the right hand. His work, his redemptive work is completed. There's nothing more that needs to be done. And then this wonderful passage that we're just getting the, started with. He's not an angel or super angel. As God in the flesh, angels worship him. They are his messengers because he's the son of God and the Davidic king who fulfills the Davidic covenantal promise. Oh, we worship you, Jesus. And we're only a couple of weeks away from celebrating Easter as we remember Good Friday and that cru- crucible, horrible, Um, evil, monstrously evil death on the cross. And yet it was that sacrifice for human sin, a once-for-all sacrifice, which is then validated and proved by the resurrection. The penalty's been paid. Death no longer has authority over us. And that's the wondrous truth, even with my mom. The the Bible says to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. And because he lives, we have that authority to know that those whom we love and go to be with the Lord the moment they're absent from the body. Thank you for that great treasure, that great hope, and that great certainty. Motivate us now with that truth as we go out to this world. May we represent you well in the Son's name. Amen.